You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here with, uh, I believe it's episode number three in the uh, gargantuan... (laughs) overarching tale of the mob and the teamsters with uh, with my good friend Camulus Robinson here who did a lot of research on this. Cam, welcome. Glad as always to be uh, be with you, Gary. Yeah, you are. You, 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 want, you want somebody to see your work or hear your work, don't you? <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> you know it, there's not much use in doing all this research unless somebody can hear it or learn about it or whatever. Read it or however you do it, you know. Uh, you kind of do it for your own entertainment, and I, I do a lot for my own entertainment. Sometimes I go down a rabbit hole, and I know you do too, that I better sit back here where you can see me, folks. <laughs> uh, I go down a rabbit hole. I don't really ever do anything with it, but I entertain yeah. the heck out of myself. Do you ever yeah, that yeah, game? absolutely, absolutely. I think we were talking about that earlier, but that's, yeah, you know, and I, I would I would go, and my wife did not uh, always share my enthusiasm when I would uh, when I would pull on a thread, you know, so uh, I was glad we hooked up. <laughs> really? <laughs> They call you for dinner for about the fourth time or go do something that you ever take care of something for the fourth or fifth time. And you're saying, just a minute, I'm, try- I'm, I'm just almost I'm solving done Solving 40-year-old I, crimes, I you know? You, I don't guess you've ever done that, have you, Cam? <laughs> Not me. Not, just don't ask her. I know I have. Here we are, uh, back with the Teamsters. We're talking about uh, the mob moves in. We've kind of got... Uh, Fitzsimmons has taken over, and Jimmy is in jail. Uh, he finally got put to jail. He, he, he beat the case, but he bribed the jury to do it, I believe. And then they caught him yeah. with the, the jury bribery and jury tampering. And so he's in the penitentiary. He's in, uh, was it Lewisburg? Yeah, or? yeah, on that on that mob row. And if you saw the, uh, the Irishman, you know that's where he and Tony Pro kind of had a falling out during that time. So... Uh, we're, we're at that point in time, he he is going to get out of prison. He is. They have basically bribed Richard Nixon with a million dollars to get him out, but they put a stipulation on it. The the union did it. Uh, Fitz and and some other people with the union and the mob, of course, had to approve of that. Did that because Alan Dorfman was part of putting that money together. Yeah. Uh, but they put a stipulation there that he couldn't come back in and have any, do any Teamsters business. And, and Jimmy Hoffa being out of the penitentiary and not being able to help run the Teamsters union, would uh, he'd be like a caged lion, wouldn't he? Absolutely. he was. That was his union, his baby, his creation. And the, the idea of other people, he was just, just apoplectic that, that somebody else had taken his union. Hoffa had plenty of money. Every, every, I mean, he it made 10% on every Teamsters loan. You're talking millions, but without his union, that was it was such a control freak. Like, so that was it for him. Really, and they probably weren't including him in on any of the action. No, down. no. He, like, we, we, we know that he was getting kickbacks from Moore Schenker for loans that he made to right. them, and then Chicago, the outfit, tried to step in on it. We heard that... Uh, tape where uh, uh, Joy Lombardo threatened Schenker and said, you know, we're in on it. And Schenker says, well, I dealt with Hoffa, and, and Hoffa didn't tell me about you guys. <laughs> you guys were in on it. And he never did pay him any money, by the way. But Dorfman and, and then Bill Presser, we talked about him out of Cleveland, and, and they're still 
you know, making these loans to Las Vegas casinos and getting kickbacks for doing that. And actually, they got caught, and Dorfman got a year in the penitentiary for taking those kickbacks. Yeah. But he kept his mouth shut and did his time and came out. Now, from between 72, 70, up to 76, that's when the outfit and Lombardo really started working closely together. Joey Lombardo, uh, Joey the Clown, would be over at Dorfman's office almost every yeah. day. Every day, Cam, uh, talking and shooting the breeze and, and making sure that Dorfman was doing all the right stuff. And uh, Presser, Presser was uh, was operating with his mob guy, uh, Macy Rockman, back east or in Cleveland, and and they approved a lot of loans during that time. I see you've got a figure down here of $183 million of loans between 72 and 76. This is before the Alan Glick $62 million loan, so boy. Right, right. And these were these were done on yellow notepads. I mean, no formal application, no credit check, and most times no collateral. Uh, I mean, they had half the loan. 50 loans were in default, losing $15 million a year in, in interest payments. Uh, I mean, you just show up and they, they'd write you out something on a piece of paper, an IOU. I mean... <laughs> During this time, some people would say they really built the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> they, they couldn't yes. have got those uh, loans to build all those casinos or remodel casinos like, uh, you know, Circus Circus got a big loan to, to build a big tower and remodel and, and do that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, the uh, the Union Plaza, the downtown hotel, it was a, a, a huge big hotel tower downtown, and, and it, was, uh, it was built with, you know, they called it the Union Plaza back then, and it was built all with Teamster money. Uh, Wiretaps are all over the place. The FBI is is really trying to figure out what these guys are doing, and uh, you know they start figuring some stuff out here in Kansas City. Uh, this prepaid insurance plan that they got into that was a big deal. Another way that yeah. the teamsters we talked about those before. Uh, that's one of the early times that Nick Savella, he had a plan. I think I mentioned this before, that first time he threatened Roy Williams, they had a plan that was going to uh, provide these guys with some insurance, some dental insurance, but it really wasn't any good. And they had a scam dentist set up to take it, and it was going to take like $5 from every Teamster every month which would really, you know, they may not even pay attention to it. And Roy Williams said, but, you know, this, is, this isn't any good. I mean, we're just ripping these guys off. And Nick Savella had to call him in and, and have a talk with him and say, no, we are going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they took that money for a while and, and continued every scam they could. Uh, you know, on a national level, uh, Dorfman and them were coming up with this prepaid insurance that would uh, – would be there'd be a lot of fake claims uh, made from doctors that they had in their pocket to get, and they'd get kickbacks from the doctors, and and it was uh, they just they just used it as their own personal piggy bank, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, we've got uh, one put together between the, the Cleveland mobs and the LA mobs were really were really uh, tight uh, through a, a guy named he uh, was. Nick Licata, I can't remember, but uh, industrial consultants, people's industrial consultants, they came up with these great names for things, uh, generic names where it, where it really fit in, and they involved Fitz, Fitz, uh, Fitzsimmons, and the FBI saw him. They recorded Fitzsimmons meeting with mob figures from, from Cleveland, 
and Los Angeles at the La Costa Resort, which is built with Teamsters money. That was basically where all the mob guys in San Diego used to play golf. They'd come up from, from Palm Springs, and they'd come out, and Alan Dorfman was a regular there, and they'd get rub downs and, and play golf, and that was that was the Teamsters and Mafia place to play golf. It, Richard Nixon also played there. And the FBI went, and they wanted to put up additional wiretaps because we've got the head of the Teamsters meeting with known mob figures discussing uh, insurance plans, and Nixon's uh, attorney general, William Kleindeist, on uh, strict orders from Nixon, denied the FBI that he told him, leave it alone. Leave it alone. This is, this is the power that the Teamsters had. The attorney general of the United States is telling the FBI no wiretaps because they needed their votes and their money. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the key. That's the key for a mob is to have control of a union and then the union be really politically active. That's... That is the deal. And now we're coming into the time of uh, the beginning of the end with the uh, Argent loan. Uh, Dorfman and Presser were big into this. And, and actually, uh, Frank Ballesteri, is my understanding, was the one that this guy named Alan Glick got introduced to from Las Vegas. He, mm-hmm. There was a guy named Bussieri out there, and I've, all of a sudden I've lost his la- his first name. I don't remember if I talked about this before, because he ended up getting killed. Yeah, and it was Nick Bussieri or something Bussieri. Yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. He, he, he supposedly made this introduction to, uh, said Glick's okay, and made this introduction to Ballesteri. So he goes to Ballesteri, and then Ballesteri goes to, of course, Chicago, and or actually went to Cleveland and Kansas City because they had, they really owned the pension fund at the time and said, you know, I got this guy, and he's going to let us do whatever we want to do. He, you know what he did? It was it was a weird deal. It, it's in that, uh, the Argent file, the, the court file. He had a note just a handwritten note drawn up, and Glick promised Frank Ballesteri, actually promised his sons, who both of whom were lawyers, that if he ever wanted to get out of the Argent Corporation, he would sell it to them for like $25,000. I mean, it was it, it was just, it, it was bizarre. It was like, it wouldn't even make sense. There's no way that could stand up in court. But for some reason, I think maybe that was a test to see if Glick would do whatever they wanted him to do. <laughs> and the only thing I can figure, he 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 paid, he kept Ballesteri's sons on a an ongoing retainer of fifty thousand dollars a yeah. month during this time too. Found paperwork that showed that, and and they really weren't doing anything. You know, just make a few calls back there every once in a while. Your, right, right. Your, your in-house counsel call the Ballesteri law firm and and get on the phone with them 15 or 20 minutes every month and and they'd send out a bill for $50,000 and they'd just pay it. So, I mean, when you got that kind of money flowing around, anybody can be corrupted, I think. It's just Yeah. It, yeah, and that's and that's totally legitimate money. Yeah. So that's that was that's what they like. And they just, you know, they said, "Yeah, for for legal fees and you know, we charge a lot for our legal fees. We're really good." And then they just pay taxes on it and you know, there's absolutely nothing you can do done a little mm-hmm. short of a, being part of a great big investigation uh, and then trying right. to get into, you know, showing the roots of it. Uh, Cam, I tell some of these same stories, Cam, over and over again, it seems like, and I don't, I forget where I tell them, but I had an FBI agent <laughs> from out in uh, Las Vegas that was stationed with uh, Milwaukee at the time, and they didn't really know, 
They knew Ballesteri, but they were not real active. The FBI was just starting to get active on Ballesteri. And, and, and they're working at their lower level guys. And, and this guy, uh, Gary, uh, Gary, Gary Magnus, in his book, folks, is Straw Man, in which uh, he tells about the founding mm-hmm. of Ballesteri when they first started following Ballesteri around. He talks a lot about Ballesteri. And then he got transferred out to LA, I mean, out to Las Vegas and, and worked the whole straw man case uh which was where we caught him cut bringing a skim out of the stardust and the tropicana but uh, he he said that nobody knew who frank rainey was and he just happened to be following balisteri just by himself that's how you do you know you pick up on a guy and say well where's he going and he's you know just see where he's going he follows him and and he was able to stay behind him look well enough and balisteri didn't know he he was there, and he followed him out to a farm somewhere out in the country, and he met another guy, and he wrote down the license plate number, and it came back to this Frank Rainey, who was on the Teamster, Central States Teamsters Pension Fund board. So that that was that's right. Contact with that, they didn't even know about him before. Um, so that they started putting that together with um, uh, Maggie Rockman, and and then Roy Lee Williams got his direction from Nick Savella, and, and put together that huge big pension fund loan of $64 million. You know, and Alan Dorfman, at the time, Chicago wasn't getting a, a part of that. They Their kickback came through Alan Dorfman insuring the the four casinos. Alan Dorfman su- supplied the insurance. His, his, his little BS insurance company supplied the insurance for all casinos. Uh, so that was that was how Chicago got their got their kickback from it. But, but they ended up getting into it. What that Angelo Leonardo ended up? He was he became the boss in Cleveland yeah. during this time. Um, it was a uh, uh, Jack White uh, Licavoli. Yeah, Licavoli was was the boss during this. This is when the Jack, when the when the D- Danny Green was going right, on. Right, all that was going on. They, and, and Angelo Leonardo kind of got it by default. I don't think he really wanted to be the boss, and he kind of got it got by default. But then when he got to be the boss, they already were working some kind of a narcotics investigation on somebody, and they put it on him. Yeah. And, and he got a huge amount of time, and he couldn't do it. And, and so we got the boss of the Cleveland Mafia, or Cleveland, Cleveland, I don't even know what they call it, the partnership or the combination, maybe, or that's Detroit. It's not the outfit. I can't remember what they call it in Cleveland. Everybody's got it. I, I don't remember what they call Cleveland, yeah. I know Different name. Buffalo's the arm, and yeah, uh, Buffalo's the, the arm. Patriarchers of the office. So they got, they put him in, they were going to you know, put him in jail for a long time. He ended up testifying about all this. I remember exactly what he said, but uh, I believe he said that they got in an argument. I know there was an argument, and Chicago called everybody up to have a meet, Kansas City and mm-hmm. Milwaukee and Cleveland. What came out of that, Cam? Yeah, they, they called him in to sort of uh, mediate the dispute, and Chicago said, yeah, we'll, we'll settle it for 25%. So then they, they after Chicago stepped in, uh, everybody then split it and, and got a quarter. So Cleveland, Milwaukee, and Kansas, they were splitting it sort of 30, 30% each way, you know, and they were arguing over, I guess, that 3.3% on this, on the back end because they wanted to equal up the math. I guess the percentages weren't working. Chicago stepped in and said, well, we'll make it an even quarter each way. After Chicago stepped in and, and uh, mediated the dispute, everybody ended up with a quarter, and that's how Chicago got into the skim. And they were making the insurance Profits off Valen Dorfman's uh, insuring the casinos. And you see a lot of back and forth at this time. Mace Rockman and Angelo Leonardo are going to Chicago pretty often. And a lot of, and, and as you've as you've mentioned in your shows throughout the years, you have a lot of 
travel back and forth between Chicago and Kansas City, there was a lot of activity during this time with, with back and forth and flying dealing with uh, different Teamsters issues and, and the skim because they had to transfer that money. And Mace Rockman was usually the guy who did it. Well, during this time, Hoffa, is, uh, he's, he's gotten out of jail thanks to the big political yeah. donation. He's not supposed to get involved in politics or rather in uh, the politics of the union or in the union, but he's really working to, to get his get back into that union at the time. I mean, he's, wor- he's working like hell. He's going all over the country. He's got, uh, you know, he's talking to these mob guys trying to get their support. I think they probably see him as a, as a loose cannon because they got Frank Fitzsimmons and he's just doing whatever they want. And they've got yeah. Presser, and they've got Roy Williams, and they've got uh, Frank Rainey up in Milwaukee. And so they, they pretty well own it now. Uh, back east, Tony Pro is in jail, and he's getting back out about this time. So, and, and the New York families, you know, he's kind of owned by them, and he would be their representatives, and they're not really too involved with the Teamsters at the time. His brother's filling in for him. He's just not as strong as, as Tony was. But you've still got a Provenzano, just not not the stronger one, you know. So you've still got, even New York is controlling through uh, through a Provenzano brother, just not the strong one. And, and Hoffa, he definitely will have the, uh, he'll have the ear of the rank and file. Rank and file will do yeah. whatever Hoffa wants. And, and he's going around trying to get these guys on board to, to try to get him back in. Now, he's got to... He's got to get work with the government, too, to get that, uh, that prohibition overturned. If he can get the Teamsters to agree, then I think the government w- government would agree, too, don't you imagine? I, I think, yeah, he thought if he could win an election, then the government would almost have to sort of let him back in. Right. They don't want to anger all those rank-and-file Teamsters by because they know what's going to happen. If, if he can win an office with the Teamsters, and then he can said, well, folks, I, guys, I'd like to help you, but the government won't let me. So what do we do now? Yeah. And, and, you know, they got they got such a heavy, heavy political power that there were enough non mobbed up Teamsters people on. the. I mean, the, the board was was pretty heavily mobbed up, but there were enough independent guys who maybe could have voted their own way. You know, Atlanta, Georgia and places like that had had guys who, who just by location, were not necessarily in the mob. And so I think Jimmy was making a lot of inroads to, to guys like that who, who were not connected to, uh, to uh, organized crime. And that was his plan. What else did Jimmy do during this time with, in regards to organized crime and kind of showing his independence? I think that this is when he reached out to Provenzano. We know that he did that. But he was—he would go on television. You saw a little bit of this in the uh, in the, the Irishman, and this is clips like this are true. He's he's going on TV talking about Fitz is always playing golf, and he's calling news conferences. He's doing a lot of talk shows talking about how the Teamsters are are getting so corrupt. He's hinting around that there is is corruption in the Teamsters, and that he's not coming out and saying mafia, but he's saying he's he's starting to work himself up, and he's getting louder and louder. You know, he's we've seen him on the Dick Cavett show, and he's not coming out and saying much about the Teamsters, but just his presence is making people worry. He's he's as he becomes a more public figure with the things that he knows. I think that, that is worrisome to people as he makes himself more of a public figure. And didn't I know that it was a violation of prison rules to secure outside employment for inmates in the prison? Well, we had quite a go around, 
And the end result was when we left, the warden, the, the captain and the assistant warden said, well, be careful what you're doing, because I refused to recognize the fact that I could not help people who couldn't help themselves. You'd like that reformed, I expect, among other things. I'm sorry, i got to cut you. We've got a message here. Uh, does the Teamsters discriminate against homosexuals? No, we don't discriminate against anybody. Yeah. We have no discrimination in the Teamsters Union, to my knowledge. Uh, you know uh, that you've been accused of it. Not, not particularly of homosexuals, but... Of, no, uh, I read today's Wall Street Journal. I know what it said. Yeah. Well, I did. And what the did Wall Street Journal today, uh, through the Justice Department, made an announcement that they're going to go into court against the... Uh, 16,000 employers and over 600 local unions of the Teamsters Union because of our seniority provisions in our contract on classifications, which would take hours to talk about. It would, and we don't have even minutes at this moment. And then he'll show up and, and call a press conference outside the Teamsters building saying, oh, Frank Fitzsimmons is not here, he's playing golf, and he makes... He talks to his lawyer, Frank Regano, and, and tries to speak with sort of guys like Carlos Marcello and, and Traficante, asking if maybe they could talk to some of the, the more traditional bosses, the guys back east and up north. But those public appearances are what really start making people nervous. That's where the public really starts looking at Jimmy Hoffa and wondering, why is this guy that we all know is, as a union leader, why is he on the outside and why is he harping on, on how the leadership now is no good? And that's really what is driving a lot of mobsters crazy. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine that when he reaches out to uh, Traficante and Marcello that uh, they really are going to sit up and take notice then. And he's not getting along with their mm-hmm. guy, Provenzano. He's trying to, he's trying to patch that up. But, uh, you know, he, he's still, he's a loose cannon, I think, as far as they were all concerned, he was a loose cannon. Yes. They didn't know he had too much power from the rank and file. They had Fitz, who was their stooge, and then they owned everybody else. Uh, so, uh, and they could not own, nobody owned Jimmy Hoffa, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right. They did not really own Jimmy Hoffa. If he decided they didn't own him, they didn't own him. So I, I could see why they would really be threatened by Hoffa coming back. And, and as we all know from the Irishman, and I don't really believe that Frank Sheeran is the one that killed him, but I do believe that, uh, that the mob killed him and, and did, something, did, did something with his body where he would never, ever be found because they knew it would be a huge, huge public relations nightmare if they got caught in that one. Absolutely. There's another reason why I don't think they would bring some guy like Frank Sheeran in there that... Uh, <laughs> you want somebody that's, that's taking the oath, man. <laughs> you don't want some yeah. some big old drunken Irishman to come in and be part of that. <laughs> right. That's a fair point. Uh, office, his, his dialogue begins escalating, and he's you do see a lot of this back and forth, and he starts having his people in the Teamsters actually make threats, and when he, he really gets up to talking about if he... He's going to have his people call in all of the pension loans that are in arrears. And if they don't have the money to pay them off, this really did happen. They commented on it in the Teamsters, but it really was it really was a threat. Then, then he's, he's going to call in all the loans and whatever can't be paid, the Teamsters are going to take ownership of the casinos. That would really draw a lot of attention. We also know at this time, Hoffa was meeting with a guy named Charles Allen, who was tight with, who, who did know 
Frank Sheeran, and he had given, over the course of a couple of years, he'd give several thousand dollars, $33,000, and he wanted him to kill Bill Presser and Frank Fitzsimmons. There were three other guys. Uh, uh, Chucky Allen did, did testify to this. He couldn't remember who the other guys were. He showed him some pictures. And then, cap it all off, on July 10th, 1975, uh, uh, Richard Fitzsimmons, who was uh, um, Frank's son, and Frank were inside a bar, and they were walking out, and Richard's car blew up, which was... Now, there's some theories on this that, that maybe Jimmy had something to do with it, maybe he didn't, and maybe it was one of those mob plans where we'll make him look... We'll blow up this car because that will, that will be the final nail in his coffin. If the president of the Teamsters' car blows up, then the, mob, then the mafia will know that, that Jimmy's totally out of, out, of, out of control. So that was July 10th. Throughout this whole time, Jimmy's really paranoid because whether he blew up Fitz's car or whether he realized that that was a message being sent... If Jimmy didn't blow up Fitz's car, then he knows that, that they're just setting him up. July 30th, 1975... He got into uh, Tony Giacalone's son's Red Mercury at the Marcus Red Fox, and that was it. And that was that was Tony Giacalone's son's Red Mercury, as I understand it. I could be wrong, and, and people people will probably point it out. But yeah, I, I think that was the case. But the Giacalones were supposed to be setting up a sit down with uh, their cousin by marriage, Tony Provenzano, in Detroit. And Jimmy wanted to try and work this out, maybe plead his case that he didn't, he on, actually didn't blow up Fitz's car, but he wanted that local 560 in New Jersey to support him. He really wanted to try and get take the presidency back, and whether it's out of desperation or, or stupidity or whatever, whoever was in that car, he got in, despite his paranoia, and he... he drove off to glory. During this time, there's kind of an interesting little side story you dug up about this Eugene Boffa, uh, who was, uh, he, he was really under, he was owned by Russell Buffalino in, in yeah. Buffalo. So what, what was that story there? Boffa owned a staffing agency, and he got around the master freight agreement. He would, he would go to the local Teamsters president and say, look, man, here's, I'll give you whatever I'll, I'll give you a uh, uh, I'll give you a brand new Lincoln you see them talking about that in the in the, the Frank Sheeran movie Irishman yeah and he's he so he'd give him a car give him some money whatever and then he'd say but here's what I want to do I want to pay your guys less than the master freight agreement they'd say okay so we go to the businesses Jim's trucking and say look I can if you pay me I can supply you a bunch of truckers for uh, 75% of what you're currently paying them. I said, okay. So Jim's trucking would fire all their current drivers. Then they'd go to Eugene Boffa. Well, the same day Eugene Boffa would hire all of Jim's old truckers and have them sign a new contract that was paying them 75% of what the master freight agreement was. And they'd go complain to their local chairman who would say, well, no, it's okay because it's a private contract and blah, 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 whatever BS. And so Eugene Boffa was going around the country doing this he was giving cars to all these these uh, uh, union officials as a uh, as a bribe to, to get around the master freight agreements. Basically, screw these these truckers. Then he would get kickbacks from the businesses for saving them money on their labor costs, and he could guarantee uh, that there would be no no uh, uh, strikes or anything because he he ran the drivers. And if anybody wanted to strike, then part of his stipulation was he would just fire them. So there wouldn't be any strikes. I mean, it was a terrible thing that he was doing. 
But one of the one of the things that's very interesting is the car that that Buffalino and Frank Sheeran drove to Detroit for the wedding was it was belong it 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 was registered to this uh, Eugene Boffa, and in addition, Eugene Boffa's wife had made a thirty thousand dollar loan to Sal Bergulio's wife. Bergulio obviously was the number one suspect in the disappearance of Hoffa, and Boffa continued this on. He was eventually sentenced to a, a, a long time in prison, as was Frank Sheeran, who did this to his own to his own uh, union constituency. He was Boffa. That's that car he got from Eugene Boffa in the movie. He did it because he sold out a bunch of his own union employees took a kickback from Boffa and violated the master freight agreement so he could screw a bunch of his teamsters and, and let them work for less money than what they were owed. Right. And, and you know, the mob was getting a little piece of every one of those contracts too. Yes. So. He was Russell Buffalino's and, guy. And, and you know that uh, Hoffa didn't, would not have allowed that to continue. That he, oh, he hell no. killed that goose uh, laying those golden eggs for somebody else. He wouldn't, I'm not saying that he wouldn't do it himself. Maybe, but I, I like to think, like <laughs> right. to think not. But he sure was going to kill that golden goose off, and and every other golden goose that the mob had going. So I, they had all kinds of reasons to to kill off Jimmy Hoffa, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So Jimmy disappears, and Frank Fitzsimmons then becomes the pretty well permanent for the president for life of the uh, International Brotherhood of Team. <laughs> seems to me like there was no way. He was never going to get out of there as long as he was alive. The, the bombing war that continued in, in Cleveland, a lot of people didn't realize John Nardi was the leader of the Cleveland Local 410, close to the pressers. And that's what the Cleveland war was basically about, is, is, is Licavoli's men and John Nardi were fighting for control of that Teamsters Local 410. You know, John Nardi eventually lost, and Licavoli controlled 410 while the Pressers controlled uh, uh, their local. When Bill Presser was getting old, and he eventually retired, Jackie Presser, his son, would take over, and that was almost like a mafia thing, where he passed the mantle of his Teamsters leadership onto his son, it was it was sanctioned by the nation's mafias, but he had he had support from Kansas City. They had to get support from Kansas City, and uh, Nick Chavella agreed with uh, Mace Rockman, and they got uh, the Kansas City vote for uh, Jackie Presser to take over Bill Presser's role. And th- this is in order for this to happen, he had to get mafia support from around the country in order for Jackie Presser to be put onto the Teamsters board. So that was that's another example of how that happens is is the mob approves somebody to be put on the board the board will eventually elect the president. And all this time he was an FBI top echelon informant. Yes. Crazy, huh? Absolutely. And and, and then he he actually he's doing what was it? He was doing some bunch of no show job. No, he created some some fake <laughs> uh locals within the teamsters that uh, were getting Teamsters money and, and, and earning money, and the FBI let him do it, he claims. And actually, they ended up, I think, charged a couple of agents being in, involved with that. Although yeah. I think they, I think it, 
it proved out that they didn't really know that he was doing that, but that's how his name came out as a top echelon informant uh, during that time. Yeah, yeah. So he's working with the FBI on one hand, and the Justice Department is covering is coming after him on on the other hand, and he's he's conning the FBI, the Justice Department, and the mafia at the same time. I mean, this Jackie Presser is a damned interesting character. He was he was really walking a hell of a tightrope. Uh, he was so close to the mafia and he was really back and forth with the fbi i i don't know of any any other person who has done exactly what the, the damage uh the jackie presser has done to the mafia but he was just just meeting with these guys on the front lines and and back and forth with the fbi i think he kind of got off on the on the thrill of it i think those guys do uh, i'm sure lefty rosenthal did he thought he was smarter than everybody yeah there, there was some rebellion started in the ranks among the, the yeah. teachers, they came up with that thing, Pride, that their other guy, and I can't remember his name, he started a magazine called Drive, and and he yep. uh, he started exposing, he was one of the early ones that exposed the uh, sweetheart deal with Alan Glick and the uh, $62 million loan for to build, to buy those casinos. And and, uh, and then tell, tell me about this Pride. Prod was uh, uh, the Professional Drivers uh, Council. That's what Prod was. Professional Drivers. They they started up during the uh, during the seventies. A lot of these reform groups. There were there were a lot of members who were unhappy, and and you see a lot of these groups. Uh, Anthony Three Fingers Casalito in in New Jersey was actually got caught up in in a bit of a reform movement, maybe incidentally. But when he disappeared, that really his son eventually took over. And there was a really a big reform election in the wake of Anthony Casalito's murder. His son became a major founder. Now they they lost, and there were you know these these uh, groups really didn't have much of a chance because the the corruption was so entrenched. But the Teamsters for a Democratic Union and Prod they really were running against for for leadership and for presidencies of these Teamsters and. Guys like Jackie Presser in Cleveland and and I'm not sure about uh, Kansas City, but there was a real push. Cleveland was was really fighting for major reform, and they these guys were just pushed down. Jackie Presser was hiring thugs to to fight them off, just like in the 30s. I mean, they were they were beating the hell out of these guys, and it's really in the 70s when this corruption is is blowing up. And I guess Jimmy in the wake of Jimmy Hoffa's death. That a lot of these guys are tired of, of of seeing what's going on and knowing that their money is is being misappropriated. They are trying to stand up for themselves, and they're just facing this this wave after wave of, of corruption and and violence. And it was really the '70s was a bad time for for the they, they it was all bad times for the uh, the teamsters. But there was a lot of a lot of people trying to stand up to them, and they just didn't couldn't get any real traction. So and it's during that time that the labor department really starts paying a lot more attention to them. I yeah. remember they assigned uh, one investigator to the strike force here in Kansas City, and and that was his job was to work with the strike force attorneys, trying to, you know, the FBI would be working on these individual mobsters. But this guy was taking all the union information and looking at union records and, and, and doing a lot of work on the, just on the union uh, without even thinking about the mobsters to see what was going on and try to put something together. And eventually they'll, they'll put it all together. It'll take them several years to do that and take the Teamsters away from, from all the corrupt influences and, and kind yeah. of re, reform them, make them have new elections. You know, these mob guys, they just got too greedy, I think. Yeah. 
uh, everybody got too greedy. Yeah. T- Tony Provenzano during this time, he's indicted for uh, setting up a $2.3 million loan from the uh, another kind of a, the Utica Teamsters Benefit Pension Fund, not even from the yep. big uh, f- the big pension fund. This was from a benefits fund. So this, this just a, what kind of thing was going on at the local level. You got uh, and Tony Provenzano had just gotten out of prison in the the early seventies, and here he is setting up a this <laughs> huge loan out in Utica. Yeah, and then he he was indicted for that murder of Three Fingers Casalito. Oh yeah, that's right. So he ends up going to jail. He doesn't really ever come back out. Tony Pro does. And he, right. And his brother is not really. He's he's trying to run the unions, but he's not really that whippy. Is my understanding. So Sammy Pro takes over of that local that local five sixty. But yeah, a couple of years out of prison, Tony Provenzano two point three million dollar loan from Utica. And while he's while he's being indicted for that nineteen seventy six, he's indicted for the conspiracy to murder Casalito and uh, Bergulio and uh, K.O. Koenigsberg were were responsible for that. You know, and the, and the Teamsters, you mentioned about that, well, it was kind of interesting that setting up those contract companies to then take over the uh, all the, the local drivers so they could just nix the, uh, they said, we're, we're doing away with all union drivers and we're going to hire this other company to do that. And then they have a better a better contract with those people. You know, I, I know in the railroad industry, they've been doing that for a long time. They'll... Uh, my son first got a job with the Burlington Northern, or actually with the, with the Santa Fe, and UP has done this too, I'm sure. They just hire all non-union, just hire a company to do all the lifts at the, uh, yeah. in the motor yards for a while. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And so they and I, I've got another friend who works for a, a big uh, at the shipping area of a big trucking, I mean, big uh, hardware chain. And they fired all their truckers, and then the contractor came in, and then he rehired them. They rehired them all if they if they wanted to. They didn't have to take them, but they offered them the job to rehire them. So, like when then the, the railroad decided they they made a deal with the union, and they were going to put union people back in the hubs to do lift all the cans off and on. So then they have to they take the existing non-union contractor employees and then interview them give them drug tests and then hire them in as union employees so that you know they were kind of ahead of things now that all the legitimate companies are doing that i just had i know a guy that got fired from that uh, or got laid off i guess he got a severance package from that hardware company but they they were replaced by a non-union company that had contracts individual contracts with all the new drivers and the new dock workers and everything so that's that's become legitimized now. That's a that's a damn good point. That's uh, you know that's that's what I do for a living, and that's and that's exactly you're you're exactly right, and it's it's totally legitimate now. Well, back then, unions had this is before Ronnie Reagan busted all the unions. I guess <laughs> busted the uh, uh, started off with the uh, air traffic controllers unions, but but it's just all changed so much, and and now we come along and have a lot of de- deregulation. Uh, yeah, you got, a, you got a section here about when Jimmy Carter was elected. What was that? What was the deal there with? The, is that when it started getting deregulated? Yeah, Carter deregulated the 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 trucking bill, and this is where you start seeing the the them get really involved in the politics with the the, the Senator Howard Cannon. 
Uh, Carter said he was going to, he supported deregulation of the trucking industry so shippers could set their own prices. That would give more power to the shippers to, you know, they could they could set prices whatever they want and it really the Teamsters would, would lose out, and they did lose out. It really affected competition, and more and more, more and more uh, shippers went out of business there, there, as opposed to across-the-board pricing. So the mob started digging really deep for a lot of political connections to try and stop this bill, and that was how they kind of... And in addition, that's where the pension, you get, you get Palmieri stepping in to oversee the pension. The government came in and... and and put the Victor Palmieri company in charge of the the pension, basically closing the bank, and the mob gets desperate there to reopen it. So they the Teamsters owns a five-and-a-half-acre piece of property in Nevada, and it's right next to a really expensive gated club and uh, sort of a gated uh, community. And Senator Howard Cannon owns property in that, and they're trying to sell this this land to be developed, and the, the residents in this gated community are really nervous. They don't want a bunch of condos or, or things built, being built on this land. They think that that'll devalue their homes and it'll be loud and a lot of, you know, they just don't want a bunch of apartments or condos built there. They make inroads. Roy Lee Williams and Alan Dorf make it. They reach out to Senator Cannon and say, listen, he puts in a bid for this land, a million four, and Palmieri turns it down. Uh, because there's already a bid on it for a million six. Well, the bid that's already on it's from Alan Glick, and so they get Glick to drop his bid. Cannon still has this million four bid. Roy Lee Williams and Fitz try it. They're they're working hard to get Palmieri to accept the senator's million four. And Lombardo and Chevelle are beside, behind the scenes. They're pulling they're pulling the strings on this deal with this senator. And you know they're trying to you know there's some some attempted bribes to get him to make the deal. Palmieri wants a million six. Even with everybody leaning hard on their people and, and they didn't have control of the pension, you've got Roy Lee Williams on these, these wiretaps every day. They, they're, they're pushing and pushing. This is where Roy Lee Williams starts getting a lot of pressure from Chavella about, you know, you've got to take back this pension. And, and Alan Dorfman's throwing a fit about that nobody's doing anything to help me. And Lombardo is in the office a lot of days and they're, they're whining and bitching and complaining about the pension. And Eventually, somebody else comes in and buys this land for a million six, and and so Cannon votes against them, and truck and deregulation goes through. If they had just come up with all these millionaire mobsters, had just come up with two hundred thousand dollars, and somehow funneled it to Senator Cannon's bid, he could have gotten the land. He would have supported their derate and and probably gotten some other people, and they could have protected deregulation. But because they were so goddamn greedy and they don't spend money, they just take other people's money, he bit, he was stuck in a million four. Palmieri wanted a million six. They got a million six. When they did the deregulation, that really changed the whole trucking, whole trucking industry, didn't it? That put a lot of truckers out of business. It's already, it's already filled with all these bad loans, anyhow. A lot of these small local firms that the, that the mobs owned went out of business, so they sort of lost that that source of revenue. So it was about this time, let's see, that uh, Fitzsimmons in a huge amount of trouble. I, I think he died during this time. Did he have a heart attack or something during this time? Yeah, he had uh, uh, lung cancer, and I can't remember if he had a heart attack, but I know he had lung he cancer. He died during this time, and that's when Roy Lee Williams then gets put forward by... Uh, yep. 
Kansas City to be the new Teamsters president. He's, you know, he's kind of the last man standing presser. Is I don't know if he's been exposed, but he's in a lot of trouble with that forming those fake unions down in Cleveland, and he may be getting exposed during this time. He certainly is is uh, being held as a joint defendant with some FBI agents for a short period of time during this time. And he didn't have the pull and the sort of the gravitas as, as, of Roy Lee Williams. Roy had been in it for much longer, you know, and, and sort of was a known commodity. We talked about him before. He he not only, he was like Hoff only, wasn't quite as charismatic, but he he was a former Teamster. He was a truck driver himself, so he yeah. had a lot of pull with the rank and file as well as the with politicians he, he you know he'd, he'd rushed el- elbows with politicians i've talked to kids of some local politicians and they talk about going out to roy lee williams farm uh, for holidays and for picnics and and things like this he was big on entertaining uh, uh local politicians out there at, at his farm and he was you know and i think I, I mentioned this story before he made big donations or the teamsters local teamsters did to a uh a uh, big home for uh, disabled people, and Max's mafia friends got some kickback from that. But, but he was really active, uh, active politically, and and so he would he was the you know the really the only choice they had at the time if they wanted to keep somebody they owned. Mm-hmm. And then during that time, that's when we're working like crazy here in Kansas City to to uncover this skim and. And when they find the notes from Tuffy DeLuna, the underboss, why there's $1,500 a month to the rancher. And when they finally got Roy Lee Williams and they turned him, he was the rancher and he was getting $1,500 a month. And that was just out of the Tropicana scheme. That wasn't out of the Stardust. I don't know what he got out of that, but but that was out of the Tropicana scheme. Because if you remember, which confuses everybody, there's two separate streams of skim. One was the Stardust and those other three casinos that uh, Alan Glick had bought in the Argent Corporation, the the Fremont, the Hacienda, and the uh, Marina, that was more like a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month, and that was being divided up four ways. And then the Tropicana was just going strictly to Kansas City. Kansas City, Nick Savella was kicking a little bit to Iupa just because he was Iupa, and he was giving he was dividing up among his guys in Kansas City and. Roy Lee Williams got fifteen hundred dollars every month from that, but I don't. We don't know what he got out of the Stardust. He was getting a, a ton out of that Stardust too. He had to because he was part of that that whole low sixty-two million dollar loan to Glick. They're going back and forth to uh, uh, the Palma Boys Social Club. They went with Tony Salerno and the Genovese to make sure Chicago, to make sure that everybody was was going to support uh, Roy Lee Williams. This, you get a lot of the back and forth and. Uh, so they got Fat Tony Salerno, and he said if Chicago's good with him, he's good with him. A lot of that back and forth with Iapa and Tony Salerno. I see Roy Lee Williams. Uh, he was he's supposed to nominate Jackie Presser as the director of the Central States Conference, and then Alan Dorfman says Chicago hates Presser, and if he got the job, they're going to have him killed. Yeah, they they thought he was a they thought he was a rat. He had helped him all along with that Senator Cannon investigation. I remember that. He was a yeah. deep throat on that. That was Presser. But, I mean, I think it's interesting you see Fat Tony Salerno interacting with, with Joey Iappa during this time about the Teamsters, who's going to be in charge. That's, that's just so damned interesting to me. But, I'm sorry, Roy Lee Williams gets the presidency, and Jackie Presser never gets the uh, never gets nominated for that uh, for his old position 
as the um, president of the Central Conference, director of the Central Conference. The poor old Roy Lee Williams, he doesn't last very long because they've already made this case on uh, him and, and Dorfman and Lombardo for attempted bribery of Senator Cannon. I guess if you don't get the bribe to him and you get the conversation about it, they got him for attempted bribery. And they get a ton of time in prison. And that uh, by then, uh, Williams has got cancer. And, and he does not want to die in jail, I guess, because he agrees to testify. And I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen those, you remember those, but he testifies, but he testifies. He's, he's got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. He's got oxygen, he's in a wheelchair, and, and his voice is weak. And uh, But I, I know Bill Owsley debriefed him and, and uh, learned a lot of things, uh, just kind of intelligence kind of things out of Roy Lee Williams, how this has all worked for years and years. One, one interesting thing uh, Bill told me about that he got out of Williams was, uh, if you remember, I know we've talked about this, when Lefty Rosenthal brought Alan Glick back to have Nick Savella scare him because he wasn't letting Lefty do everything that Lefty thought he ought to be able to do. And he convinced Glick to come back to Kansas City, and he met with Nick Savella. And Nick Savella, they put him in a hotel room, and Nick stayed back in the shadows, and they took a a, a light, the, what do you call that, a stand-up light in the room, uh, and, and put it, shined it directly in his eyes. And then Nick Savella standing outside the outside of the cone of light and started threatening him and saying, you know, I, if it was up to me, you wouldn't leave this hotel room alive and you got to take care of this. You owe me a million dollars, a million and a half. And, and Glick says, well, I don't know how I'm ever going to pay that back. And he said, well, you've got a man right here, Lefty Rosenthal, that'll take care of that. You just let him take care of that and, and we'll be fine. So Roy Lee Williams tells a story to Owsley that when he was a young, younger teamster here in Kansas City, and that's when Nick came up with this plan to get $5 from every local teamster for some kind of a supposed uh, uh, health insurance plan, a little extra health insurance plan. And it really was, and Williams said, well, you know, I'd just be screwing my guys over. They get nothing for their $5 a month. And Nick Savella then had him picked up and brought to a barn somewhere and, and put a shined a light in his eyes, just like in the old school uh, B's movies out of the 50s, shined a light in his eyes and threatened him and threatened his children and, and, and threatened to kill him. And so they, they had that plan going for a little while. It didn't last very long. It was just kind of a little little extra little piece of action that Nick Savella figured out how to scam out of the Teamsters, and it didn't really last that long. But that's that was interesting that, uh, you know, that Nick Savella did exactly thing, yeah. the same thing 20 or 30 years later hell of a negotiating tactic <laughs> really, <yeah. laughs> is that what eventually brought chavella down was the uh was roy lee williams testify because i know he was out of prison when he died but he was he was about well, see, to go back that was all part of it. it it's all part of the skimming investigation see it's really hard to, for people to explain the they uh, chavella wasn't really part of the the bribery attempt that Williams went down, but he was talking about everything. And same time, they've gathered all this information on all the uh, the uh, skimming efforts, and, and they're bringing that down. And, and they've got a couple of storytellers in there, and and Joe Augusto was going to be one of them. And he had face to face meetings, and they've got a, a wiretap. I mean, a, an audio of those face to face meetings. Him telling Nick. 
him and Carl Thomas telling Nick how they're going to skim from the start or from the Tropicana Casino, and him giving directions and what to do. So they've, they've got Nick on the casino skim, and, and would have him on this, but but he dies before they actually get to yeah. trial. Back to Jackie Presser, who has been working with the mob, but also informant to the FBI. Yeah, they, you know, the, an article came out in the Cleveland Plains Drifter saying that uh, uh, Jackie was an informer, and they printed on the front page. And Mace Rockman calls up Tony Salerno, saying, you know, we need to get this, we need to get this taken care of. It's gonna, you know, this is, you know, they didn't know. And Jackie Press said, oh, this is BS. So, uh, you get Salerno calling up his attorney, and you know, at the same time, Donald Trump's attorney, Roy Cohn, who Roy Cohn reached out to people he knew in Cleveland. And uh, the paper printed a retraction and an apology. This is the mob reached out to a Cleveland newspaper. Tony Salerno mailed a copy of the retraction and the apology to uh, IUPA in Chicago because he knew that Chicago didn't like him. So so this is another uh, uh, Tony Salerno reaching out. And that's a lot of people say, well, Tony Salerno wasn't the boss. But what Tony Salerno was was he maintained those relationships. Right. So it wasn't like he was a nobody. He had relationships with people all over the, the, the country that, that Chigante didn't have. So he was an important figure, whatever you want to say about him. Uh, he was a necessary member of the Genovese family. And he, he was, whether he was, was the one pointing the fingers or not, he was still the guy who was, who was doing the majority of the work. So l- let me see if I got this right. The I've never heard this story before. The 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 main newspaper in Cleveland, the Plains Drifter, gets information that Jackie Presser is a top echelon informant for the FBI, and they print a story about it. And we talked about yep. that earlier, how that was coming out because he had this case, and and they tried to charge these FBI agents with it, and so they ended up saying, "Okay, dude, if it, you know he was trying to to drag them into it, and I don't think they were really in it; they were just maybe asleep at the switch." But they weren't making any money off of it, and so they they threw him to the wolves basically, and and probably uh, uh, slipped the information to the newspaper, and then Vashi uh, <laughs> Rockman doesn't really want this information out for him to then figure out trying to figure out how to get this fixed because he's it's damaging his relationships with Chicago. Yeah. He reaches out to Tony yep. Salerno, and Cleveland always had these closer connections with uh, New York and Chicago. Right. He reaches out to Tony Salerno, who then uses his lawyer, Roy Cohen, Trump's lawyer, <laughs> of all people. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And, and he knows somebody, somehow he can pull a string at the Cleveland newspaper to get a retraction printed, and then they can use that to send it to Iuba to say, look, you know, he's not really a snitch. That's crazy. I mean, that's way Correct. too much power, isn't it? Way too many connections. That's that's and that's in the eighties. That's the mob in the that's is late seventies, early eighties. That's it's just insane. That was kind of their peak. Now, now, Fat Tony Slerno, he'll end up slowly but surely uh, growing old and decaying and and going into uh, senility in the penitentiary down in Springfield with my friend Steve St. John. <laughs> Used to sit with him and some other guys a lot. So I, I asked him. I said, "Well, you know, what did he talk about?" He said, oh, "He said he didn't really talk hardly anything. It's like he always had a cigar stuck in his mouth, and he didn't hardly ever talk to anybody." And like when Lefty Rosario was there and who who was responsible for, you know, 
bringing Joe Pistone in and as much as Sonny Black was. And, and he said, yeah, he said he never even, he never even hardly acknowledged Lefty, but he did let him sit with him. <laughs> so Cleveland's pushing hard for Presser to be president. Chavella owes them that favor because Cleveland supported Williams. So Mace Rockman and Angelo Leonardo are back and forth to Chicago and they're talking to Jackie Cerrone and Iepa. They still don't like Presser. Uh, Rockman and Leonardo go to New York to see Salerno, and he says, "All right, I'll call. I'll call them guys in Chicago, and I'll talk to them." And and that's that. That's I'll call them guys. And so he probably said, "Dim." Yeah. <laughs> Licavoli goes to prison in '82. That's when Leonardo takes over. Chicago's opinion sort of loses value because Alan Dorfman is shot in '83. So this is where they kind of there's sort of that great turnover of power. When, when they finally lose the Teamsters altogether, and it transfers back to Tony Salerno. Uh, Tony Salerno then has, has the, the Teamsters become his with uh, the, the remnants of the uh, Provenzanos still on the um, Teamsters board, and you've got Jackie Presser is still, I think, the president. Jackie Presser is working to straighten up the Teamsters, whether you can believe it or not. He is trying to take power away from the mob, he wanted central leadership to support the locals. He didn't think the locals should just support central te- the, the, the central leadership. So he supports Ronald Reagan, if you can believe that. He, I think he could read the tea leaves and knew Reagan was going to win anyway. So he thought, well, we'll get some, some help. And so that he, he was tight with Ronald Reagan. But 83 was when things really changed. Chavella died on bail. Uh, Williams' testimony, a bunch of other things, as, as you talked about. Langelo Leonardo became a, a government witness in 1983. That wiped out the Cleveland mob. Patriarca died in 84. Uh, Jerry Angelo was still controlling a guy named William McCarthy. In 83, it came out that, J- that uh, press was an informant. And so we also know that Jackie Cerrone... Jackie Cerrone flew to New York in 1983 to meet with the Genovese leadership. I mean, he was more or less going to say, I told you so, which ended up being a stupid thing because Jackie heard about this meeting from another teamster and he immediately goes to the FBI and says, hey, you know, Jackie Cerrone from Chicago was just was just in New York meeting with uh, Tony Salerno and all the upper ranks of the Genovese crime family. So uh, Jackie would die of cancer in 86. William McCarthy from from, uh, Boston would become president. But Jackie Presser's FBI file drew so much federal attention to the corruption and the Teamsters and the mafia and everything that the Justice Department stepped in in 1986 when McCarthy was president and they formed a RICO case against the Teamsters board. Part of that RICO case is we will strip all of you of your positions, your six-figure salaries, and your multi-million dollar pensions, or you can let us mediate for a few years, and we are going to, to determine the rules of this union. So the board signed agreements on election reform. So in 91, when the current officials' jobs all expired... Federally appointed election officials uh, oversaw the first general election of the Teamsters. So the the board, the mob, would no longer control the president of the Teamsters, and the rank and file would uh, hold secret Democratic elections, and the mob, they still own a few locals, but they would no longer control the executive board of the Teamsters, and, and they were out. Yeah, and it's never been, they've never got back in. Of course, the Teamsters has changed so much after... Right. Uh, trucking deregulation has uh, 
continue to change the trucking industry that and there's so many non-union mm-hmm. drivers and and it's just it's uh, so many owner operators out That's there right. and, and uh, railroads uh, started hauling more and more with the development of intermodal freight that uh, you know the the big over-the-road trucking companies just are a mere shadow of their former yeah. selves like uh, my son and i invested some money in yellow freight which is kind of interesting yellow freight you became uh, yellow uh, uh, YRC Ye- yellow roadway corporation I think they merged with roadways but uh, I invested a couple like a thousand dollars in their stock because they were kind of they were depressed and I figured well yellow freight they've been around for years or or yellow they called it by then but I just lost every penny of it it, it all just disappeared when uh, through whatever changes that they went through and and they're still out there as, as YRC I believe but uh you know it's just they just don't do what they did none of those big trucking companies did all those owner operators then the price of diesel went up way way up and uh, they weren't making hardly any money it's uh it's it's still a tough way to make a living is it's over the road truck driving they used to be a pretty good job too yeah now it's 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 much harder and in the, in the you know the, the the teamsters don't have near the power they used to and so it's and and the the after the the McClellan it really did generate the idea that a lot of unions because there were there are multiple unions as part of that McClellan and and I think the idea of unions and corruption has just become almost endemic to a lot of people and and obviously union people know the value of them but I think a lot of states that don't have unions uh, don't really understand why they're important and just see them as 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 avenues of of corruption. I don't know. It just seems like. Life has changed. It just like unions are a thing yeah. in the past. I, I I don't know. All right, Cam. I think we've done the Teamsters here. Teamsters and the Mafia. Absolutely. All right, Cam. I'll uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right, we'll talk at you. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline. 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob-worn Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the... Uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps, to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.